Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame football recruiting remains hot with the top-ranked 2023 class of 13 four-star and five-star commitments and is building an impressive list of visitors for June. When people ask me, what do we cover the rest of the year, I, I think they should look at all the college football news that's happened this month and particularly today here on Thursday. Uh, a lot of that news as of late on the national level has included the future of college football in the NCAA landscape, which Nicole Auerbach, senior writer for The Athletic, has spent a lot of time covering. I'm not quite sure how she keeps track of all of it, but maybe she can give us some clues on how she does that. And we are certainly grateful that she does. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nicole, I think we have to start with the firestorm that that Nick Saban created Wednesday night with some pretty forward ac- accusations against Texas A&M and Jackson State. What, what surprised you the most about Saban's decision to speak to that and the reaction since then? That he did it at all. I mean, he called people out by name. And this was actually one of the things that he walked back when he eventually did an interview with Sirius XM later in the day on Thursday, but he said he wished he hadn't said specific names, right? Specific schools. Um, because I, I mean, I think it makes all the sense in the world that people felt really defensive and upset because, you know, they, he wasn't, it's not like he was saying, you know, these people are breaking the law, they're breaking rules, but he's saying they bought their players and no one wants to hear that. And, you know, we, we all know recruiting. We know these coaches, they like to be known for being good recruiters. They like to be known for building relationships, their players and all the other things that they're building, even in this NIL era, they don't want it just to be that their boosters paid a player the most. And that's the only reason they're getting players, right? Like nobody wants to hear that. So, um, you know, I think that was part of the reason that people were so defensive, but just really kind of wild that Nick Saban of all people started one of the craziest media news cycles that we've had in this sport in a long time, leading to Jimbo Fisher's hastily called press conference. That was an all time moment in college football press conference history. Well, Nicole, I always love it when there's a spat like this and then suddenly Brian Kelly is trending on Twitter (laughs) and Lane, Lane Kiffin is weighing in. The tentacles from this are as fascinating as the argument itself. But when we get to the core of the argument, is either of these guys right about what they're saying in your opinion? I think they're both right and they're both wrong, right? Like I I think they're they're essentially both talking about two sides of the reality that's that's happening with NIL. Like some collectives and some fan bases and boosters have been much more by the books about the way that the NCAA rules are written that you're really only dealing with athletes who are enrolled and current students. And then a lot of what we've all consumed a lot of time and energy on this, the past couple of months are, is about recruiting inducements, right. And about the collectives that are offering money for, for a player essentially to enroll in that school, but they're, you know, they're, they're phrasing it a little bit differently. They're not putting it that it's contingent on the school, but we all know the appearances and the deals or everything are in this college town, huh? I wonder which collective you're working with. And that's something that is supposed to be against NCAA rules. That is something that the NCAA is trying to crack down on because boosters are not supposed to be in contact with recruits. So that's really what Nick Saban is upset about and what he's talking about. And that's what a lot of coaches are 
complaining about publicly and privately because it's not supposed to be the reason you sign somewhere. And we've seen it with transfers. We're seeing it with high school prospects. But Nick Saban was trying to clarify he's cool with it when it's players who've accomplished something and they've done something and then they cash in. Again, you need to also kind of think about the context. He's essentially saying these comments in front of people he wants to pay money to Alabama players, right? Like he's trying to kind of light a fire under them. But again, Jimbo Fisher and some others who are places that have collectives that are very aggressive will say, we're not doing anything wrong because we're not directing the collective to offer that player X amount of money where the contract does not say they have to sign here. Right. So that's maybe technically true, but certainly not the way that NIL is supposed to be used. So you can see the points of both sides, but I think obviously it's embarrassing, but highly entertaining to have a giant public spat not a great look for the SEC. Greg Sankey had to publicly reprimand these two for saying what they did about each other, but they both have some truth to what they are saying. And I think that's what's funny is everyone can see what they're trying to say and then be like, I can't believe that they said it the way that they did. My follow-up to that is I, I talked to Jack Swarbrick yesterday, Notre Dame's athletic director, and he and Marcus Freeman at least publicly remain of the opinion that Notre Dame doesn't have to be the highest bidder. They don't have to get into this. And they right now have the number one recruiting class in the 2023 cycle with star power coming in June for official visits I've never seen in a weekend before. So they seem to be confident that they can live in this world without uh, exploring the gray area. What's your take on that? Is that a sustainable stance? Well, that's, I think, what's going to be really, really interesting in this next little bit here, because this is still really the only the full, first full recruiting class that NIL was even a factor. Right. And, and it's already evolved in the in the 11 months it's existed. But, you know, I was having the same conversation earlier about my alma mater at Michigan. And, you know, they're they're kind of in a similar boat where. Like, I think a lot of the Big Ten schools aren't really going to be dipping their toes in the same way that the SEC schools are that we've seen and just the aggressiveness out of the collectives and making it a piece of the recruiting pitch. I think you're going to see a lot of what you see, you know, with Notre Dame of like resources to support the current athletes when they want to do stuff, but then also, um, and, and have a charity element or, or whatever that piece might look like. Uh, hold on one second. My dog is whining. I'm sure you can hear him in the background. His name is red Auerbach. So, so I thought it was Tyler. <laughs> Red, come on, come on. You want to get up here? No, you're just going to, you just want to stare at me. Okay. He's just going to stare at me. Um, so I apologize for the whining in the background. Just a very needy Bijan Yorkie. Um, so, so, but, but the point is, I, I do think some people are going to try to do this a little bit differently. And, and we just don't know what that impact is going to be in terms of the types of recruits that they're going to get. Um, and what is that gap? I mean, we already see a gap, right? This is part of the Brian Kelly's comments all off season about, you know, I couldn't win a national championship at Notre Dame, but you're recruiting at a high level, right? So you're getting good players, but what is that gap? And, and for Michigan, they make the playoff, but they don't win. There's still a gap that exists and there has been an exact gap with Ohio state. So does this widen the gap? Does it leave the gap exactly the way that it was? Does it mean that these teams can't win national championships in this era? We don't know yet. And so I think we need to see some of that play out. Um, and, and obviously I think a lot of us, including, um, you know, Jack Swarbrick's had these comments, right. About 
inevitable that there will be a different structure, governance structure, revenue model. I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of planning for that world. So that stuff's going to have an impact as well. Like the current way that NILs and collectives work exists right now, but does that exist that way in five years? Probably not. Right. So I think we'll have to see how some of that stuff plays out and some of the schools that that really prioritize a lot of different things, sponsoring a lot of sports, academic mission, all these other pieces, how, how aggressive they're going to be in the, in the athlete compensation space is, is going to be a question that maybe that answer changes, but we still just don't know what the impact of those slight differences in approaches to this stuff actually are going to play out on the field. So I'm, I'm really fascinated to see what it is. But again, this goes to the point I was saying earlier about coaches who view themselves as really good recruiters, people persons, right. I want to say people, people, but like, that was going to sound weird, (laughs) but like someone like Marcus Freeman, that everyone speaks so highly of everyone who's ever worked with recruits, his staff, everybody loves him. That is going to factor. That is going to bring in top talent that that it's not like that piece goes away when there's money being thrown around. Um, It's not going to be the same for every recruit. You spoke to the the changes that are probably ahead with NIL. You also had a story recently that I would encourage our listeners to read titled Transfer Windows, Recruiting Periods, and More, previewing the NCAA's Summer of Rule Changes. And that looked at mostly things that don't have anything to do with NIL. Uh, And there's a number of different changes that are being thrown around and and thought about. I'm curious, what, why do you think all of these all, all this change is coming to a head at this moment right now. Do you think it's connected in any way or is it just sort of coincidence that all these changes seem to be happening at the same time? Some of it's coincidental. I mean, like I think some of the areas that I wrote about, you know, simplifying recruiting calendar issues, right? Like either you're on or you're off. Is that necessarily an issue that's coming from, you know, the Supreme court ruling last year? No, but is that tied to modernizing college sports and the way that this is run? Yes. So everything is technically under that, but a lot of the changes that we're going to see here have to do with the Supreme court ruling and just the NCAA being forced to change in some of its areas like unlimited scholarships. I mean, we're, we're going to be headed towards a world where let's say baseball has 30 scholarships. I'm sorry, 30 players allowed on the roster that you're going to have conferences decide or schools decide we're going to offer up to 30. You can offer up to 30 full scholarships. Like why was that at 11.7 this whole time? I mean, it's kind of wild that it existed that way for so long, but some of those things that are like somewhat arbitrary caps on opportunities and money for student athletes, money that can go into their pocket, that's stuff that's going to be changed. I mean, there's a group called the NCAA transformation committee in division one right now, that's the group that is looking eventually at, you know, the governance structure, what is division one or should there be subdivisions? But right now they're the ones looking at transfer portal windows. They're looking at the scholarship limits versus team size limit, a roster size limit. They're the ones looking at, do you have unlimited size for, for a coaching staff? Because they're, they're starting with issues that could be antitrust issues that they could get sued because that was part of what came out of the Supreme court ruling Obviously it was nine, nothing against the NCAA, but that was kind of a narrow ruling. And then you had justice Brett Kavanaugh say, Hey, bring on more lawsuits. Like there's more stuff in this model that is illegal. So you have all of these different challenges. You have pressure from state and federal legislators as well. 
So they're backed into the space where they need to figure out what they can do that won't cause future lawsuits. So that's where some of these changes are coming from. And then there's other ones like the transfer portal windows, where it's not restricting the opportunity for a player to transfer because that would be an issue, but it's creating some order around it. So they're trying to figure out areas where they can add reasonable rules because private companies can have rules, but also not have antitrust issues. And so some of this stuff is coming from that other pieces, like even, you know, the fact that we were talking about playoff expansion for eight months or whatever it was last year, that wasn't necessarily tied to any of this stuff, but they're all kind of interconnected because it's about finances. How do you sustain scholarships and this, this entity that this thing that is college sports into the future. But I think it's also just prompting a lot of conversations about what is this going to look like in five years, 10 years, how do you sustain it? What should be connected who should be under the same umbrellas and all of that's kind of interconnected too, especially as you're dealing with like potential legal issues in a legal environment right now, everyone's together and and working through all of that. So some of the rule changes, some of the structural differences that you're going to see are related to that. And then some are just maybe common sense. I mean, does it make sense to say conferences should be able to determine who gets to play in their conference championship and not require divisions. Like maybe that's just simplifying things. So some of it's that, but all of it is trying to figure out how do you modernize and make this model more flexible so it can react to stuff so that it exists in some capacity The college sports can exist five years, 10 years, 15 years from now. It's interesting because there seems to be so much momentum in the last maybe 30 days about maybe college football is outgrowing NCAA leadership and they need to do something else. And I think protecting themselves from future antitrust suits, conferences, you know, they, they even said in the Alston, you, you know, if the conferences were um, making decisions rather than this body, that would be better for y'all. But uh, I guess the thing I kind of wonder, Nicole, is if you think, all these changes will eventually lead to just a flat out arms race. Uh, and that's how, uh, you know, it seems like it's moving in that direction anyways. What do you think? I think that's definitely a, a fair question to pose because if you think about deregulation and making more decisions at the school and conference level, some of those rules were set in place for, well, cost-saving reasons, but also competitive balance reasons. And so if you say, you know, your football staff can be however large it wants and everyone's a coach and they can work with people on the field, well, some coaching staff, some some athletic departments are going to say, we're going to funnel a lot of money into that and we're going to have really big football staff um, because it's not capped and and we're going to decide that that's a sport we really care about being nationally relevant, nationally competitive. So it, it is going to lead to that. And we've had people again, we we start, you know, we're talking about Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban. Isn't the complaint essentially that, you know, it's, it's too much of an equal playing field. Alabama's used to being like able to get whoever they want and they don't want this other factor being a reason that talented players go somewhere else. I mean, there's going to be a million other things that pop up um, in, in, in this, in a new world a year from now, two years from now, five years from now that are not going to be an even playing field. And, and you can certainly argue that there isn't one and there never was one. And there were always places with inherent advantages or more resources. But I just think a lot of that stuff's going to kind of bubble to the surface where you're going to have to explicitly decide something. You know, if you're in the SEC and 
there's unlimited scholarships, just a roster size cap for baseball. Baseball is important in a lot of places. Is it important everywhere? So a lot of places will be like, okay, we're going to go up to the maximum allowable. We're going to have a full roster, full scholarships. But other places that maybe it's not the most important thing are going to have to specifically like say, we're not going to be nationally competitive in this sport. We're not going to invest this. Like there's going to be a lot of really hard conversations. And even in football, what is success? What are we shooting for? People are going to have to have those conversations because some of the rules aren't going to necessarily protect certain areas where you can say we're doing as much as we possibly can. I don't think that's bad. I mean, I think that's just where college sports is. It's kind of just saying all the quiet stuff out loud. And I, I think that's really where we're going. But certainly you could argue that the the schools that are in the conferences that bring in the most money and have the most, you know, money flowing in are going to have the best resources, the most coaches, you know, if the SEC and the big 10 suddenly are making a lot more money than everyone does the SEC staffs do the assistant coaches make way more money than everyone else. And then they can poach assistant coaches away from what would have been a peer league, a peer school in the PAC 12 or in the ACC. I mean, these are real things that could certainly happen, but it's, it's almost like you don't have a choice at this point because of the legal environment that, that people are walking into, where even if people are concerned about parity or about competitive balance, like it's just not going to be a thing that's going to stop some of these changes from happening. Nicole, you did a story on uh, a trio of former coordinators deciding to make the leap to head coach this offseason, and Tony Elliott, Brent Venables, and Mike Elko. And those guys certainly waited quite a bit longer to become head coaches than Marcus Freeman did. I'm curious, do you see any parallels between that group and Marcus Freeman? Well, I think just going from being a high-profile coordinator to being a head coach is, is a really interesting thing, especially you'd be doing it right now with all the issues that we're, we're talking about. Um, a lot of those guys are are younger, right, and, and are maybe more hungry for – or willing to deal with some of the off the field stuff. Tony Elliott had a really interesting comment in the article about kind of feeling like there's this coaching fraternity and that other coaches have carried it for a long time. And it's like their turn to step up, which I thought was really interesting, but I think it's also, these are really smart coaches. And Marcus is obviously one of these two where you know what you're looking for in that opportunity, because you're not going to set yourself up for failure in your first head coaching job either. So you know what you're looking for when coaches say alignment, right? Your president, your AD and everyone else, the boosters, even the alignment around the program, the investment, the resources, the, the assistant coaching salary pool, all of that stuff. And, and these guys are so coveted that they know that they can ask for stuff. They can demand stuff. They can make sure that pieces are set in place or maybe for Marcus, different staffers are going to stay when you make a decision because you have a lot of leverage when you're the guy, you're the it guy. Um, And so I think that there's a lot of parallels there. And then also just being picky about the type of the, the type of place. I mean, you're talking with all those names, including, you know, Marcus, we're talking about power five head coaching jobs is your first job. You didn't, you didn't have to start at the group of five level. You didn't have to start, um, you know, in the, in the middle of the group of five bottom tier or whatever, and try to prove yourself as a head coach. You know, these are people who've been around the best in the business and are able to take that away and say, you know, this is how they manage stuff. These are the responsibilities I had. And I know what being a head coach and the CEO role entail. 
So I think there's a lot of parallels. I mean, Dan Lanning being the youngest head coach in the country at Oregon, like I'm fascinated to see how that goes. I mean, the trends in hiring are really interesting right now, especially with like Jay Wright retiring. Like, I don't know if any of these guys are going to be in the same job 20 years from now, 25 years from now, like they may have in a past generation. So what does that mean? What do these coaches do that's different? How do they embrace like all of the changes that are happening in an era, in a profession where they love to have control over all this stuff? Um, how do they continue to relate to players in an era where players can move, move around really freely right now? Like all of that stuff's really interesting. So I, I kind of love that they're all going to experience this as first year head coaches together. And in a lot of the schools we're talking about also very like high academic schools, which again, when you're able to be picky, you can do that. And then you're recruiting a certain type of kid, your priorities and the things that they're coming to college for are in, you know, a certain group of, of areas, of topics of important factors, all of that stuff comes into play. So again, I'm, I'm really fascinated to see how it goes. Um, and, and especially Marcus and, and like you said, the way he's recruiting the staff, he's got around him, the facilities, the support. Um, I just think it's going to be a really interesting first year and I'm excited to see it. Well, all right, Nicole, that's all we have for you today. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and we'll see, uh, what other kind of news is broken in the 20 minutes we've been talking? I'm sure something's Yeah, well, today. it's like every time you guys reach out to me about coming on, like some major, major news <laughs> happens in college football. So maybe wait a couple of months and get let me let me take a breather, maybe a vacation, and then we'll do this again. That sounds good. Um, best of luck to the dog, Red Auerbach. I love it. Yes, he is finally calmed down. But thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or on the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at T James NB and Eric's at E Hansen NB. First one we have is from Steve Goforth Five. Do you think Dante Moore hasn't signed on yet because he's waiting for better wide receiver recruits to commit, or do you think better receiver commits are waiting for Moore to commit to Notre Dame before they commit? Well, just um, in the interest of accuracy. Nobody can sign until December, but I know that you mean verbally commit. Um, and I don't think either of those scenarios are true. I don't think the wide receivers are waiting on him. I don't think he's waiting on the wide receivers. However, if he commits in June, which I expect him to do, um, I think it might help with wide receivers with a difficult um, decision maybe namely Rodney Gallagher and Jaden Greathouse um, may be two guys that are encouraged by Dante Moore. I think, um, you know, Tommy Reese is also selling the thought that Tyler Buckner is going to be thrown to them as well. But uh, um, that's my take on it. I think the reason it's taking Dante Moore this long is this is the process he's committed to seeing everything, considering every angle, leaving no stone unturned, even though he like he has liked Notre Dame and it's been his leader for a while. Yeah, I think there's some merit to wide receivers waiting around to see what Dante Moore is going to do before they commit to Notre Dame, but I don't I don't think it's that black and white. I think um it's not like Say say Jaden Jaden Greathouse for example, he's not going to say, "Well, if Dante Moore com commits Saturday, I'm I'm committing Sunday, or even a week or two from now." I think it will. I think it's important for them to see that, but I don't think it's going to be like the sort of the action point of them making that decision. I think Notre Dame is in good spots with wide receivers. 
Um, I actually don't think Notre Dame is, a, is as good of a spot with Roddy Gallagher as some have seemed to believe. Um, I indicated that on the message board the other day when I did a uh, wide receiver class predictions with uh, alongside um, Kyle Kelly's recruiting reset at the position. Um, but, but I do think there are other wide receivers that are interested in Notre Dame and certainly seeing Dante Moore jump on board would, would be helpful there. I, I know we thought like maybe that would help with, with Carnell Tate. And I think it would be helpful, but I, it, it doesn't seem like Notre Dame is necessarily trending with Carnell Tate, but if Carnell Tate keeps prolonging his recruitment, maybe there, there's time for that to change. So I think um, there is a possibility that it will influence some wide receivers. If Dante Moore does commit, I would, I would pump the brakes on him deciding in June um, because I, I mean, I, I believe he's got like a seven-on-seven seven tournament in Las Vegas the weekend of the 10th through the 12th when Notre Dame is, was hoping to get him on campus originally. I think um, in a perfect world, he's on campus the following weekend after that. And then at the end of the month is when the Elite 11 finals are. So I think he's going to be pretty busy in June. So it'll be interesting to see if he has enough time to sort of weigh everything out and come to a decision that month. But, I mean, the idea was for him to be done before his senior season. So um, he still has time for that. But um, – I know it's, I know everyone's antsy waiting to find out what uh, what their fate with Dante Moore will be. And uh, Notre Dame is one of them, though, although I, I do believe that the Notre Dame staff remains confident in its position with him and its relationships that is developed with him. Next question is from Cheryl Russo at Cheryl R. Bunch of Numbers. I am hearing that Joe Wilkins is still in a cast and on crutches. Any word on any wide receivers that can help Notre Dame? Right. Well, um, Joe isn't expected back until August or even September from his injury. So um, they're kind of in the same place they were when he got injured and really even before he got injured of wanting to add through the portal. Um, so far there haven't been matches in the portal, uh, whether it's um, somebody doesn't have the right credits to transfer um, or um, just not somebody that they feel like is a good, somebody that can help them that's better than what's on, already on their roster. I think um, if they don't add through the portal, this could still work out as long as there's not a lot of injuries next year. And you need some things to happen. You need Tobias Merriweather to be somebody that can at least be a rotational receiver. And we had Tobias on the podcast um, a few weeks ago, and he certainly has the mindset to contribute. Uh, he's tearing it up in track. He just ran a 10 uh, to get himself into the state finals in Washington in 4A, and he's running the 200 tomorrow, Friday. Um, they need Deion Colsey to have a strong summer. Either that or Jaden Thomas needs to kind of separate and be the, the uh, more dominant of those two prospects, the guy that can help them at the boundary receiver. And, you know, there's Jadarian Price and Chris Tyree can help as slot receivers, but they need – if everybody stays healthy, they have enough numbers. Uh, but right now there's nobody on the horizon that I know of in the portal that's going to um, be able to make a difference. Yeah, uh, that is, uh, I mean, that's what we've been saying for 
a couple of weeks now. I feel like I don't even know the, the amount of time, but that was the feedback that we had received that there wasn't really anything brewing there, um, which I don't think is ideal. But uh, I, I mean, early on in this process, we're like, well, there's still plenty of time. It's like, well, now it's we're getting into late May here shortly. Uh, and I don't think uh, uh, I don't there's nothing immediate that seems to be happening. So um, I, I'm starting to think that it might not happen at all. Um, and uh, just to confirm, Wilkins, he posted photos from commencement last weekend uh, on crutches and in a boot. So this wasn't a, this isn't just a random rumor. There is, there's merit to the fact that he's not, I mean, but I don't think anyone expected him to be ready right now. Uh, he's still got a long ways to go. And the healing part of his recovering from the Liz Frank fracture is, is the most important part. Um, so I think uh, there's still, still time for that to, to How would occur. you like to have your uh, last name attached to an injury, a Tyler or a James <laughs> fracture? A James fracture. Uh, that'd be all right. I mean, Tommy John surgery. I think, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of cool, but, uh, uh, and there's I mean, Tommy John underwear. There could be, there could be, there could be worse things to be associated with, I guess. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go on as you were. No, no, you're good. You're good. That was about, uh, I didn't have much more to add. Let's go on to the next question. Uh, from Marie BFRA at BFRA underscore Marie with the exception of Dante Moore, who do you think are the two most important targets left on the board? Well, I think there's some really highly ranked players that I'm going to eliminate in this question because I think this is position specific. Uh, I think uh, to add to um, Braylon James at wide receiver, Notre Dame needs to get somebody else that's similar caliber. And I I feel pretty good about them getting Rico Flores in July. I think Ronan Hannafin, if he has a good visit, is a guy that can play multiple positions. I think they feel pretty good about that. But if they're looking at four or five receivers, they need to get somebody like either Jaden Greathouse or Rodney Gallagher, both of them. And then the other person I would say, so I'll I'll say Jaden Greathouse. Um, And then the other player, they need to get a plug-and-play corner. They need to get a high-end cornerback, and I think Christian Gray is the best of the from St. Louis, which they're fighting Brian Kelly and LSU for, um, is the best available player at that position. Yeah, I think you cheated off my answers because I I, I have the, the same ones. So those are the two most obvious positions of need for Notre Dame. Um, and those so are the I don't get credit for coming up with that myself. <laughs> no, no, you the the. Uh, that uh, I guess hopefully we're not letting down Marie. I mean, I can come up with two more, but uh, th- those are the those are the two guys that I would uh, I would I'll point come to. Up, I'll come up with two more since those are your. I would say beyond those two, I still wouldn't pick, you know, um, Samuel Mapemba or Caleb Downs, even though those are maybe the two best players right. on the board or highest rated. I would go with Charles. How do you say his last name? Jagusa is how I've been told. Jagusa, um, a stud offensive lineman. And I would go with Jason Moore uh, on the defensive line. You add him to the group they already have, you got an SEC class at defensive line. So beyond the other ones, uh, those are the other ones that I'll add, just so Tyler and I can be a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, I, I consider uh, throwing in like a front seven guy on the defense because I think if you get Mpemba or you get uh, – 
Jason Moore, that 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 takes the the defensive front seven class to another level, um, in my opinion. I think it's really good now, but I think that would be, I mean, it wouldn't be up there with Texas A&M last, last recruiting cycle levels, but it would be up there for for the best defensive line class in the country. So I think there's a, and obviously that's a very important position, even if the, the need at that position isn't as high as uh, the needs at cornerback and wide receiver. Next question is from at Dallas fan in DC one. What are the max number of scholarships Notre Dame has for the 2023 and 2024 recruiting classes? Can we go 28 deep like Alabama or Georgia? Well, if you had asked that question a couple days ago, I would have had a different answer, but the division one council yesterday approved uh, teams being able to go over the 25 cap, the 25 cap in a class goes away for two years. And I would imagine it's not coming back after those two years, but at least for the next two years, teams can go over. So really it comes down to 85. And the reason the 85 max for the roster, but the reason why they did that was because of transfer portal losses. And so now teams aren't forced to replace portal losses with portal gains. They can just recruit more high school kids if they want to go that route. Um, so I think Notre Dame is going to have classes at or above 25. I would expect the next two classes, especially with how much talent is interested in Notre Dame in those classes. And that means some kids that are not as talented are going to be recruited over and they may end up in the portal. I, I don't think it's a situation where they're going to push people out, but I do think that they're going to be aggressive in signing, knowing that there's going to be attrition through the portal that they can't replace easily through the portal. Right. Yeah. It's harder to, for Notre Dame to bring in, like they lost what I was, I think it was thir- 13 scholarship players since the, the end or since the start of last season in the portal. And, and certainly they're not bringing that many in. Um, so I, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm interested to see how it develops because I don't know that there's like a a consensus yet of what number they're going to go to. I, and I think that's always like really hard to pin people down to because you want to have flexibility and you don't want to cut yourself short on, on guys when you, you maybe see an opportunity. For instance, with Richard Young, um, a four-star running back, the number two running back in the country, according to rivals, um, he wants to make an official visit to Notre Dame. You don't want to say no to him, even though – you have a commitment from Cedric Irvin. You, you like Notre Dame's chances to get Jaden Lamar next week when he announces his commitment decision. Does Notre Dame need three running backs? Uh, probably not, but uh, it's hard to it's hard to say no when you got a guy that good that wants to get on campus, and we'll see sort of what progresses from there. I, I so there there definitely is a, an aggression to this this coaching staff and recruiting staff in terms of let's just go get guys and figure it out later. Um, it is more complicated at Notre Dame because like you mentioned, like pushing guys out, which, which does happen everywhere. And even at Notre Dame, I think the writing is on the wall for some guys and, and Notre Dame isn't shy about letting them know like, Hey, like this is where your standing is in the program. Um, you make the decision. I mean, they're not going to say we're not going to, they're, they're not likely to say we're not going to honor your scholarship, but they will be blunt with them about their standing within the program. Um, and so I think we're, we're going to sort of see you, Notre Dame's tolerance for being more aggressive with that. It's more difficult at Notre Dame because guys that come to Notre Dame, they're like, hey, I came here to graduate from Notre Dame. So 
I'm not leaving until I graduate. <laughs> like you can say goodbye to me after my junior year if I can get done with three, get done with it in three years. But I'm not. I don't want to get. I don't want to leave and, and, and waste this opportunity of getting a Notre Dame degree because that was a big reason why I came here. So it's a little bit more complicated for Notre Dame to push those numbers too high because I, I don't think they can anticipate a lot of guys leaving. Um, it's easier. It's easier now because of the COVID rule where kids had extra eligibility and kids have been around in the program. Um, and so there, a lot of those guys that you would lay, well, I don't know, does Notre Dame really, does this kid have a future in Notre Dame's program? Well, those kids have already graduated. So it's a little bit easier to, to, to say, okay, we're not, we're not asking you back for a graduate senior season. Um, but that's, that's where this all becomes tricky. I think in a perfect world for Notre Dame, the 85 scholarship, 85 scholarship limit would go away and they wouldn't have to worry about that as much. Um, and I, I'd be curious to see how that progresses. I, I think, uh, the idea of there being no scholarship limits, I, I know obviously that was how it used to be done 40 years ago or longer. Uh, but when I was in college, it was that way. Um, it, it just, it, it, like you meant, like you asked Nicole, like, is this just going to become an arms race? If you have unlimited scholarships, like what stops schools from uh, having 100 scholarships where other schools can only afford 75? So um, it's uh, going to be fascinating to see where this all ends up. I know. Well, that, I, I mean, <clears throat> the the thing about it is, <clears throat> with the transfer portal the way it's set up now, even if you had unlimited scholarships or you put the self-imposed at 105, you know, kids still want to play. This was the olden days. You know, I had two fraternity brothers that were backup quarterbacks at Ohio State. One was a four-stringer, and the only reason he got recruited was so that he wouldn't play for a team against Ohio State. They had no no um, designs on him ever starting for them. Mm -hmm. It was to keep him away from the uh, opponents. All right, next question. Uh, similar topic from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. It seems the 25 scholarship limit will be eliminated. How do you see this affecting recruiting? Do you see schools oversigning and then essentially having tryouts in the spring and cutting players by pushing out older players who are already on scholarship into the portal. In college uh, football as a whole, I absolutely see that. I, you know, anytime you have a rule like this, there's going to be people that not only explore the gray space, the gray area, they're going to breach it. And so there are going to be schools that do that. I don't think Notre Dame will do that. Uh, I think they're going to pretty much keep their philosophy similar, and they put themselves in a great place because they keep their student athletes on pace to graduate in three and a half years. So if they're kind of nudging somebody toward the door, they have their degree in hand, where at these other places they don't, a lot of places. Yeah, and like I think you're right. It, there, it'll be sort of twofold. It, it will allow schools that are having trouble retaining players, which I think is the intent, um, to make up for those defic deficiencies and add uh, more players through recruiting because they're losing guys in the portal. Um, and it'll especially help the new coaching staffs that are looking to sort of turn over the roster. Maybe you guys don't want to stick around because they weren't recruited by this new coach. Um, I think it'll be very beneficial. I mean, that's the, the best time to recruit as a head coach is either after a national championship or after you just became hired, because it's it's easy to sell something brand new when you weren't the guy that was running things before before it was before you. Uh, so I think that that will play a major role for those programs. 
But I also think those the most successful programs will use it as a way to push push their recruiting misses out the door and into the transfer portal and try to uh, uh, get as many new guys in and, and sort of fast forward that process of figuring out, okay, could this guy play for us? I don't know. It won't be as like a formal as having spring tryouts or something like that, but it will be a bit of a, a vicious cycle with those guys um, become, coming to their school and then after a year or two be like, all right, we have no more use for you. You should, you should hit the transfer portal. We're going to just recruit beyond you, which happens play elsewhere, but I think it's, it's, it's easier to um, legislate with the 25 limit. And um, I think it's, I believe the 25 limit was, has only been taken away for the next two years. It's not a permanent change yet. So we'll see how, how things sort of continue to develop on that front. Next question, which I think uh, Eric is uniquely qualified for. Um, from Andrew Barlow at Barl Andrew, will anyone be offering conflict de-escalation training for all ND fans headed to the Horseshoe in September? If the level of logo provoked fisticuffs with total strangers drift, drifts into OSU UM game range, folks might need to put the fight in Fighting Irish to survive. Well, it, it's funny because um, these teams will be playing for the seventh time ever, and they are rivals. There's no way around it. They're rivals because of history. Their histories, their rivals because of geography, their rivals because of recruiting, their rivals because of fan culture. Um, I the rivals that, because the rivals because of Eric Hansen's allegiance to both schools. <laughs> there, there. I think there's less awareness of this rivalry with the OSU gang, um, and, and maybe even in their media too. That they're they're not quite as aware. You know, because I've witnessed it, and and if you look even on our message board, the Insider Lounge right now, there are people that don't have great things to say about the Ohio State fan base. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I think there's some similarities between the feelings for Ohio State from Notre Dame fan base and Michigan, but at least Michigan they play more regularly. Right. Uh, and I would say they still feel like the Ohio State fans are more obnoxious. I think they think Michigan fans are delusional. Um, <laughs> I should have asked Nicole about that. Um, as far as the de-escalation, um, I think it's a lost cause. I, I think that uh, Ohio State fans are going to be Ohio State fans. I've told this story before when I was walking to go into the Fiesta Bowl uh, at the end of the 2005 season at Sun Devil Stadium, I saw an argument between a Notre Dame fan and Ohio State fan outside the gate, and I kind of watched them before I went through security. And the Notre Dame fan was just saying, you know what, your graduation rate is only this percent, and uh, da, 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 da. And the Ohio State fan goes, oh, yeah, and threw up on him. So <laughs> that kind of that kind of encapsulates the rivalry. <laughs> I, I figured the 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 resolution to any conflicts would just be the shared animosity towards Michigan. I, I think that it just if 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 you see Notre Dame fans fighting with Ohio State fans, just say, "Hey, muck Michigan" or whatever. Just come come together in your hatred for Michigan to de-escalate the situation. That would be my advice. And uh, try to try to avoid uh, any any fans who are too inebriated, which I, I imagine there will be plenty of on, on both sides of the uh, sides of the the aisle. There. Next question is from Nathan Reynolds at Enforcers Twenty One Seventeen. 
Do you think USC will be this year's Michigan State, a team that's been down and that's been down and uses the transfer portal to remake their roster and win 10 plus games? Well, they just got their 14th transfer today. And I can't say it's the biggest one, but it's it's a great <laughs> one. And Jordan Addison, the Bolitnikoff award winner. I mean, they've already gotten two great ones from Oklahoma. Uh, they've really remade their wide receiver room after losing Drake London. Um, and when you look at their schedule, you could see them going 6-0 and pretty easily with uh, Rice, Stanford, Fresno, Oregon State, Arizona State, and Washington State. And then they hit Utah, which is a consensus preseason top 10 team. That's on the road. But then until they hit UCLA and uh, Notre Dame at the end of the schedule, not an overly taxing schedule. They miss Oregon. They miss Washington. Um, you know, they have, they still have some holes that they didn't fill with the portal. They were bad defensively last year against the rush, against the pass uh, on third down, and they did not address their pass rush, which was really bad. And they lost one of their best pass rushers. So, they're going to be in a lot of high scoring games. Yeah, I think it's possible that they could get to 10 wins, uh, but I think it also might be, you know, with all those transfers, with trying to recreate or create a new culture, that maybe this is the transition year and then next year is when they're going to be more dangerous. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of moving pieces at, at once. So I think it's, it's hard to make that happen. But to, when you're bringing in players that talented, it certainly remains a possibility. Um, like you mentioned, I, their offensive and defensive lines seem to be better, but I don't think there are many Pac-12 teams that can really punish them for those deficiencies. So I think getting to 10 wins seems attainable. Uh, now, I, I think I think there's talk like, well, can they actually get to the playoff? I, I don't know that that seems reasonable. I, I wouldn't necessarily rule it out, but um, – like, like I said, the, the all the different guys playing together for the first time, even though some of them are Oklahoma team, former Oklahoma teammates coming together, I think that makes it a little bit more difficult. And uh, we'll see how it goes. I, they're going to be a fascinating team to watch. I mean, I think if when I'm not covering Notre Dame and, and, and USC is playing, I think it's going to be hard to not be tuned in to, to see what's going on with them because I think they're one of the more fascinating teams going into the season. It, Tyler, do you remember? I know Mike Burrell tweeted this yesterday. When is the Pac-12 losing the requirement of division winners to meet in their championship game? Do you know if it's 2023 or this year? Because it just passed yesterday. I do not know. I'm okay. scrolling. I'm scrolling through Mike Burrell's tweets as we as we the Pac-12 announced starting this year that it's two teams with the highest winning percentages. Okay. We'll face off in the Pac-12 title game. That will help because otherwise that Utah game could have kept them out of the Pac-12 championship. Now, if they and Utah are the two best teams, then they would meet again. And they probably will have a better team in December than they have halfway through the season. USC. Right. All right. Next question is from Chris Stakowitz uh, at Iculus 26. Will Audric estimate be the next Jerome Bettis on the field? No, but I think it's going to be really good. Well, I mean, Bettis, I mean, I saw, I was around for Bettis, and there's nobody that's like that. He's incredible. Uh, but Audric Estime, 
And, and, and Bettis was like that from the start. I mean, he walked in the door and he was special. Uh, I think Audra can be really good, though. He's a guy that has a lot of power. And obviously, you know, everybody wants him on their SWAT team because he can win <laughs> all the weightlifting things and so forth. But there's more finesse to his game than I thought there would be. You know, he's pretty good catching the ball. He's um, He can make you miss. Uh, you know, his, the next step for him is not getting so caught up in the east-west stuff. He needs to he needs to put his foot in the ground and cut up field faster. But I like him. I think he's going to be really good, but he's not going to be Jerome Bettis. Yeah, I <laughs> though I don't know that I would use the same tone that you did when you first said no. That that was that was basically my answer too. I, I think that's that's too high a phrase to put on uh, Audrey Gestime, Uh Even though I do like him a lot, I actually ranked him number six in the 2021 class of Notre Dame's commits um, back when we, we did that. But I also put Blake Fisher at number seven. So <laughs> my rankings may have been a bit flawed. Uh, I put Rocco Spindler at number three and probably should have, should have flipped those guys. But um, I, uh, I, I do think there's a lot of potential there with, with SMA and uh, I, I'm fascinated to see what his role in the offense is moving forward. Next question is from Rhino1134 on the Insider Lounge. What is more likely in 2022? Tyler Buckner passes for at least 3,000 yards and 30-plus touchdowns and also gains at least 500 rushing yards and 5-plus touchdowns, or any single running back gains at least 1,000 yards and 10-plus 10, 10 touchdowns? I think – I'm not sure that I would bet on either of those happening, but if I – said more likely I would do the Tyler Buckner equation. I think the there's going to be so much parity between the running backs, and that's assuming Logan Diggs comes back healthy at some point in the season. And even if he's not, Estime's going to play. Jadarian Price is going to play. Uh, Jabron Payne is capable. You got Chris Tyree. I just think this it's going to be spread too much for someone to get to a thousand yards. Yeah. We're in agreement there. The, the, those numbers for Tyler Buckner are, are certainly high, but I, the opportunity is, is going to be there for him. I don't know that the running backs will have the same sort of opportunity to be, uh, have that consistent of production required to get to those numbers. There's too many options. <laughs> if, if you had to pick one running back to reach those numbers, which one would you pick? I would have picked Diggs, a healthy Diggs. Right. Um, because I think Tyree is going to get pulled into that slot receiver a little bit. He has that home run capability where he can put up numbers fast. I just don't know that he's durable enough to put up those kind of numbers. So, yeah. Yeah. Given the dig situation, I, um, and for anyone who doesn't know, he, he tore his labrum in the blue gold game and had surgery on that, which, could put him on a tight timeline to be able to return in time for the season opener. Um, I, I, I almost feel like Janarian Price is the, the running back that I have the most confidence in. Like if, if anyone was going to do that, get to a thousand yards and, and have 10 touchdowns, um, <laughs> this seems kind of crazy um, after just seeing him in the spring, but he, I feel like he might be, I, 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 he seems he's the most well here. Yeah. And he's, he seems like sort of most well-rounded, um, and I have a weird, weird confidence in him, um, yeah. which uh, I, I don't know. I, I, it'll be I, the running back position 
I mean, this one has a weird confidence in it. <laughs> yeah. Being yeah, able to call the running backs. Especially, especially since, like, he didn't – I mean, he didn't recruit him. And, like, uh, Janarian Price isn't here because of Dylan McCullough. So, Dylan McCullough isn't saying this because he worked to get him to Notre Dame. He inherited him, and he's like, this kid can play. Like, there's no – there's no hesitation in his mind about that. So um, I, I think uh, there is a lot of fascinating storylines going into this 2022 season for Notre Dame and, and the running back position is right up there in my mind. Next question is from at Incuro Irish one, who would you like to see replace Drew Brees? Who do you think will actually get it? Um, I don't, I don't know that I have a dog in this fight as much. I, if there weren't, you know, I, I like Brady Quinn. I think he'd be interesting. I think it, the fans would be happy with him. And I think he'd be objective. And I think people right. could handle him being critical of Notre Dame because they would believe he's telling the truth. It's not because he's rooting against them. So that would be, I think, a good good one. Who do I think will get it? Um, I have no idea. I think... Uh, I thought Tony Dungy did a really good job. I, I kind of, I guess if I were guessing, I would say Notre or Notre Dame and NBC would go after a, maybe a former coach. I, I can't identify who that is, but somebody that brings that kind of perspective. I thought that was kind of a winning, a winning formula there. Yeah, I mean, we have no idea. I mean, it doesn't sound like Mike Tirico will be the play-by-play announcer either because he will be doing Sunday night football games. Um, so there's plenty of plenty of things up in the air there. I'm, I'm very interested to find out who it is, uh, who those who the two people will be. Maybe they do something with three people since they don't necessarily have a like, great like second person. I, I would be I would be open to that idea. Um, in terms of like my preference, yeah, I agree with you, like Brady Quinn. I think Mike Gold Jr. Um, I think those guys would be good at it. Um, they can give good analysis and, and, and they're not afraid to be harsh either. I mean, they understand yeah. uh, the, the job and respect the job and not just be there to, to root for Notre Dame. Um, I, I, I don't sort of understand or get the, this perception from NBC of like, Hey, we, we can't get Notre Dame guys because we don't want people to think that, the, that our, our broadcast is biased, but, is that really going to impact anyone turning the game on? Well, I, I understand why they did it at the very beginning of the contract because it was something new. Sure. I think now I think it's you can find people that can fit that role. And yeah, because I mean, because people are going to think you're biased just because of the contract, regardless of who's in the booth. I right. mean, they've had USC and Boston College guys in the booth, and people will still think they're biased. Uh, so I, I I don't think that uh, plays too much of a role. Who will actually get? I mean. I don't know that I have a name, um, but I, I think it's probably someone that NBC is I potentially replace Chris Collinsworth in the future. That seems to be like that was sort of the idea with Drew Brees. Um, and I think that's the, the job seems like it's going to be continued to be treated as sort of a training ground for for Sunday night football and, and it's and it's bigger products. Um, and I'll tell you uh, who I'd like to see on the sideline is Jack Collinsworth. I think he's spontaneous. He's smart. And again, that's a Notre Dame guy. So maybe that's, you know, NBC doesn't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think they're open to that. And Corey Robinson has obviously done some stuff with NBC as well. So um, like that, that, that would be, I would be sort of interested if like maybe there was a three man booth and one of those guys was included in it. Um, because uh, um, although 
I mean, I guess, I mean, Jack could, in, in theory, become the play-by-play person because they have an opening for that. He's doing some play-by-play stuff for the uh, USFL games right now. Um, so I, I, I don't know if that is a possibility, but I don't think I would necessarily rule it out. Um, and I, I, I don't, I, I guess, I don't, I don't know if they would treat, the, he's not like, he's not a former player. So I think it would be a little less like, like people probably don't know, like random people who would turn in, tune in, know that Jack Collins went to Notre Dame. Whereas obviously people know that Brady Quinn went to Notre Dame. Yeah. Um, next question is actually a bunch of questions that I thought we could uh, end on um, from at Patrick Shield zero. Um, so let's go one at a time. Will the Irish wear green this year? Well, I mean, everybody that knows me knows I'm not good at the uniform questions. I'll say yes for the Shamrock series, but don't go out and buy something because I said that because I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, I'll go with yes. It's interesting. Like those seem to be very popular jerseys when kids come on visits. Uh, Not maybe as much lately, but I I do believe like even Carnell Tate and Dante Moore were taking pictures in green jerseys back when they were visiting, I think, last year. Um, So, um I would, I would imagine that Marcus Freeman is someone who would be open to that. Um, speaking of jerseys, so another question that you love, what are your favorite alternate jerseys for the Irish? I have no idea. I'll let you answer that one. And I, I, It's not a bad question. It's just it's not my thing. Anything that doesn't have a spaghetti sauce stain on it is my favorite. So. <laughs> well, I liked ones that would have looked bad with spaghetti stains on them. I like the 2013 Shamrock Series jerseys. Uh, that Notre Dame wore against Arizona State and Arlington. Those were all white. Oh, those were kind of cool. Those gold helmets. At, um, I'm curious what Under Armour has cooking up for Las Vegas. I, I think gold would seem to be a sort of a natural theme there, but I, I don't I don't know what's gonna <laughs> what's gonna happen with those. I think there's uh, hopefully some create creative uh, jerseys that look pretty cool there. Next question: What happened to the women's basketball team that created the transfer floor? Now this is a topic you probably have more insight to than, than your, your jersey takes yeah so I think it's a product of a couple things one is um you, you're getting universally transfer portals and not just people that are looking for more playing time across the country I mean Angel Reese left Maryland for LSU she was playing a ton and Maryland's best player and decided she wanted to go to LSU um, uh, Kylie Watson, who's part of the incoming uh, grad transfers, was part of the number one class in the country three years ago. Five young ladies in that class, and four of them transferred in this cycle. Four out of the five. Out so, of out of out of Oregon for those. Out of Oregon, Oregon too, yeah. and and Kylie Watson being one of them. Um, so I think it's just kind of work women's basketball is specifically to Notre Dame um, and the four that transferred were Sam Brunel, uh, Anaya Peoples, uh, Caitlin Gilbert, and uh, Abby Brahaska. And I would say, I'm not sure if Caitlin had her degree, but the other three did. Did Caitlin get her degree? Do you know? I think she did. Yeah. I think I looked it up. She was listed on the commencement list for this, this past weekend. But but what what they are looking at is a team that's going to be in the top 10 next year where I think, you know, you're an upperclassman, you play guard, all of them play guard except for Sam, and 
the two starting guards are freshmen um, and they play a lot of minutes. Neither one comes off the floor very often. And then, you know, Dara May Maybury, the third guard plays a lot of minutes as well. So I think if they were looking for, um, you know, a different role where they might be um, have a more prominent role. And especially when you look at uh, Peoples and Brunel, I mean, those were top 20 recruits. Brunel was the number one recruit in the country at some point. So I don't blame them for saying, hey, I want to take my hand and see if I can, you know, play 36 minutes a game somewhere. Um, so was there something deep, dark secrets? I mean, was there bad feelings of any of them? I can't say universally there was not, but that happens sometimes. There's hurt feelings when two freshmen come in and all of a sudden you're kind of recruited over. And, you know, it's hard to argue. Sonia Citron was the ACC freshman of the year and Olivia Miles would have been if she had been eligible for it because she right. played in a handful of games last year as a high school senior. Plus, um, she wasn't eligible for it. But, I mean, I think that's that's the way it goes with the women's basketball program. And you will not see them – I mean, they have 15 scholarship limit. They're never going to probably have more than 10 on scholarship. And even that might be a lot just because people want to play. And if they're not playing, it's going to be bye-bye. Right, yeah. I mean, that's what we saw with people leaving. Um, I, I, people are – I mean, players are always going to feel a certain type of way when they feel like they're get, getting – their role is being taken over by younger players. That, that's – I mean, that's – sports have always been like that. That's not a new development. Now there's obviously a new way to sort of, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going to play right away somewhere else. Um, now, of course – because all these all these women have graduated, they would have been able to do that under the previous system as well. But um, I, I just think that sort of a, I mean, and we also I mean, we, you see this in other sports um, when a new coach comes in and there's some success with maybe players that that coach feels more attached to. Um, those players would be like, man, I don't I don't know that I'm getting a fair sh shake here. Um, now that perception might have some truth in it. It might also be a little bit seeing it through your own, uh, own favored glasses. I mean, like you, the players that left were, were popular recruits too. Like they had, they had all kinds of places they could have gone besides Notre Dame when they ended up committing to Notre Dame as high school recruits. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's worth noting that all of those players went to, I think what, what any neutral observer would say lesser programs than Notre Dame. And their opportunities for playing time will be much less impeded um, at those new programs than it will be at Notre Dame. Um, and on the flip side of that, the, the recruits that Notre Dame is bringing in all come from pretty good programs. Um, when you talk about Texas, you talk about Oregon, you talk about Stanford. Um, now, those players weren't necessarily producing to the level that they thought they could have or um, wanted to at those schools and were looking for another opportunity. Um, so it, it's going to be um, not, not necessarily an easy transition to replace those players that left. Um, and I I mean, from Notre Dame's standpoint, it's like, hey, look what we did with Maya Dotson. She was not that kind of player when she came from Stanford to Notre Dame. Yeah. Um, and that worked out great for Notre Dame. Now, they wish they would have been able to last another year, but the NCAA wasn't, wasn't having that um, with, with the – 
strange uh, eligibility rules that have been going around um, because of the COVID and whether or not you transferred or played in 2020. Um, so there's, there, I think there, every situation is different. Like all of those players, like it, it's, it's generalizing to say, well, they all wanted to play more and didn't like their situations with the program. Like everyone has their own sort of view of that and different relationships with the current coaches um, and different reasons to go to different schools, whether it's closer to home or whatnot. Um, so it's, it's hard to sort of put everyone in the same category, but I, I just don't, I, this isn't like some novel thing. I just think there's a lot of like, and we see this on our message boards. I don't know how much this speaks to like the entire fan base. Cause obviously that's dangerous to do, but there is some questions of like, okay, was Neil Ivy the right choice for this? Did she deserve this opportunity? Now, I think anyone that supports Neil Ivy would say, listen, Muffin McGraw thought Neil Ivy deserved the job. So if she says so, I think we should listen to Muffin McGraw. She knows the, the Notre Dame job better than anyone else does. Um, whereas some people wanted someone like Beth Morgan to, to receive that opportunity. So um, I know I'm, this is a very long answer to, to a question, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a complicated question. And it's not necessarily an easy answer. There's a lot of factors that are involved um, and uh it's, it will make for what I, I believe should be a pretty entertaining uh, next season for the women's basketball program. All right, last question, which I think we'll be able to be a little bit more succinct with. Uh, thoughts on the baseball team and possible tournament dreams? Well, I think that how what kind of draw Notre Dame gets is going to be really important in terms of whether they can get to the College World Series and this Miami series that begins tonight, Thursday night, is going to go a long way to determining what overall seed Notre Dame has. This week, they actually slipped in both of the two organizations that make those projections. They were 10 in both Baseball America and D1 Baseball last week. They're 11 and 12 this week. Um, top 16 gets you to host the regional, but the lower your number is the harder that number two team is going to be. And right now the projection is that they would play either Texas or Dallas Baptist. And those are tough outs for Notre Dame. Um, and then the other thing is if you get to play your super regional at home, and I think that might've made the difference between Notre Dame getting the college world series or not last year. I know Lick Jarrett thinks it would have made a difference. Um, and so if they do well in the Miami series, they may be able to climb up into that top eight and have that kind of advantage. Notre Dame, the, the things where I think they're vulnerable is pitching depth. Uh, they need some people to step up like Aiden Tyrell, maybe Matt Bedford, a, a sophomore who just became eligible. They need that pitching depth in these uh, postseason situations. And then, uh, you know, they need not to run into dominant right-hand pitchers with great sliders. They're a little bit more uh, – they, they were, I think, too right-handed in their lineup. I, Jared Miller got hurt, and Jack Penny's playing in his place right now. He's a great left-handed bat. I think that actually helps their balance of their lineup a little bit right now. But uh, Jared Miller is an incredible defensive player. Yeah, Eric is the uh, the baseball expert of the two of us, at least the Notre Dame baseball expert. Uh, uh, so his his explanation. I'm the Tony Larusa expert too. He was good <laughs> for my team. Uh, I'm going to no comment that one. Uh, 
I, I'm not like Eric said. I'm not. I'm not confident in the the pitching to get them to the College World Series. Um, but it, it, they're a pretty sound team. Like they don't make a lot of mistakes. I think that's part of their potential to to make a run. And I mean, it's baseball. If you get hot at the right time and you're pitch, you have a just a, a you know you don't even need a ton of pitchers. If you just have a few pitchers that are that are that are dealing and if you can do that consistently, um, I think a, a run through the super regional is possible. Um, we'll see if that happens. I, I mean, I, I, th- I think this series against Miami and then obviously the ACC tournament after that will be a good sort of litmus test is like, okay, how, how, what kind of run can this Notre Dame team make? And it also might not be predictive at all. That's kind of how baseball works. Like one weekend you don't have it the next weekend you do. So um, I, I don't know. I'm, I sort of speak on both sides of my mouth right now. But. Well, I mean, a great illustration of that was NC state and Arkansas in the super regional. I think Arkansas, who was maybe the number one team, beat them like 21 to two in the first game. And then Arkansas and then NC State came back and won the next two games. And that was stunning. That's just how baseball is. So it's hard to say, yeah, they're a lock because there's very few locks in in college baseball. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with a friend. Um, We aren't necessarily on a strict weekly uh, podcast timeline currently, but uh, we will keep you posted on when the next one will be coming. Um, Keep keep, uh, in touch with either our message board or uh, on the on Twitter, uh, we'll ask for questions ahead of ahead of time, so you get a get an idea when we're going to do that. Um, I think we'll, we need to start focusing a little bit more on recruiting moving forward, um, because it, like like I mentioned at the start of the podcast, their name is is really rolling and um, is setting up quite the uh, the visitors list for for uh, June, um, and that will be uh, definitely the meat of our coverage on the website as well at insideindysports.com and uh, stick with us there all your Notre Dame coverage needs.